Acts chapter 21. We land in verse 15. We're going to read through verse 26. Paul has now finally made his way to Jerusalem. We've been talking about that road, right? Like he's coming to Jerusalem. He's had his heart set. Last week we talked about, can we hear from God? Like he felt the Spirit was driving him to Jerusalem. Every Christian community he went to was saying, Paul, the Spirit is basically telling us, don't go, you're going to suffer. And so you had a contradiction of messages, right? One was like, I'm going. The other is like, the Spirit's telling you not to go type thing. And we talked about that. We ended off last week's message about this this idea of not presuming to be the voice of God for somebody. And we pick up the reading in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us Nasson of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles uh, through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And Uh, They had been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. That was the Nazarite vow. Okay. And uh, take them and purify yourself along with them and pay your expenses in, and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles, we have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice to the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. We'll stop there. Amen. We've been setting the stage actually for this moment here. In his first and second and third journey, as he was planting churches through the regions of Asia Minor, even when he went into Europe and Macedonia, when he went into Greece, as he was planting these churches through these journeys, Gentiles, non-Jewish people were coming to the faith. They were believing in Jesus and they came from very different backgrounds. Now you can imagine two people getting married who were raised from very different family circumstances or traditions or customs. How in a sense they're just trying to like, like learn each other because it's hard to unlearn how you grew up. And so Jews had a certain way that they went about their religious behavior. And Gentiles, who were also, in a sense, still religious, had a certain way in their belief, in the way that they did things. And when Christ was preached to them through Paul, they came to believe in Jesus. But even though they believed in him, the practices of old didn't fall away so quickly. 
Okay? So they stuck with them. And so they began to not just live as usual, but they believed in Jesus. And there were certain things that they felt weren't very important to kind of let go of. And so they held on to. And as they were going, this idea that they, as a Gentile believer, needed to be circumcised, all of the men, in order to have a true faith, as was handed to them from like Abraham and through the law of Moses, this became a point of contradiction. An issue for them. And this, the entire church in Jerusalem took a stand on, right? And they were really trying to discredit the ministry of Paul primarily because of the issue of circumcision. And we had talked about how this letter was drafted in Jerusalem and how they sent it, okay, you don't got to be circumcised, but abstain from blood, the strangling and this and that, and from fornication. And this letter by the hand of Paul was circulated to all the churches that he planted. Okay, guys, you don't got to be circumcised, but the church in Jerusalem, the leaders over there, think that in order to live a life that will be pleasing to God, at least these things. And they celebrated the news that when they received this letter, all of the Gentile churches were so happy and filled with joy over this. And now coming back, Paul went on all of these multiple journeys and now he's back in Jerusalem in front of James and all of the elders once again. And he says, brothers, man, it's been a while since we've been together. And I want to update you. I want you to know that I've been traveling these churches again. And as I go, God has been doing amazing things through them, in them. They're coming in droves to believe in Jesus. And they were celebrating that. Right, The elders were. But it somehow turns in our passage. Yes, they were glorifying God for the ministry of Paul, as it says in verse 20. But there seems to be a shift in the dialogue a little bit from the second half of verse 20 onward. And so they were glorifying God for the ministry. But then they said, you know what? There were actually a lot of Jews in those cities where you were at. And somehow they came to believe that you were telling even the Jews that they don't need to be circumcised. And they're taking issue with that because now you are breaking their heritage. Everything that was handed down from the Mosaic Law and from Father Abraham is now being contested because they're thinking that you're saying you no longer have to be circumcised as a Jewish Christian. And so they devised this plan. Okay, we got these four guys. They're taking a, like a Jewish vow, the Nazarite vow. They didn't cut their hair, right? And uh, they've they got these four guys, and they're about to complete it. And I just want you to include yourself. Just pretend as though you are one of them. Pay their expense and yours, and go finish the days of purification. You'll shave your head, and then all of the Jews will know that you still basically like the law. That you're law-abiding, like mosaic law-abiding Jewish person, right? And so they set the scene, right? In a sense, it was kind of fake, right? Like, Paul, we want to save your skin a little bit. Everyone's got this kind of against you. This is what they're saying. I want to prove them wrong, and this is how we're going to do it. Join these four guys, purify yourself, and let them know that you uphold the law of Moses. He does it. <laughs> he does it. Some people look at that and say that was a compromise of Paul, right? And other people can look at that. You know the passage when Paul would write, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Gentile I became a Gentile, to those under the law as under the law, to those uh, without the law as without the law. I became all things to all men, that by all means possible I might save some. 
I see that more as a representation of that here. And so this is an interesting setting. Paul is finally in Jerusalem. He knows that the Spirit has driven him here and that he will suffer in this city. And now he's just like appeasing the Jewish community. Like what happened to the strength of this apostle, of standing on his principles, right? He seems to be just kind of bending over backwards not to get persecuted here. But he does something that I want to springboard from and talk about this idea of conscience. Now what I'm going to say is this, I'm, I realize that the content of this message has the potential to disturb and to skew, to give you license for something. And so I'm going to tread a little carefully, but I, I believe it's important to relay and it's, it's that moment of, like, when do you tell a young child certain bits of information where they're no longer too innocent? And they now have the ability to decide for themselves, to make some solid choices, and not just to kind of be led by the hand all the time. Like, when do they graduate? What are the, the markers of maturity for them to be able to say, okay, you choose for yourself. If you want to walk down that path that's dangerous, I'm going to let you walk it. Because you need to ultimately build the mechanisms inside to be able to make those choices for yourself because I'm not always going to be around. Right? And in a sense, this message kind of has that feel to it. Because what I'm going to be saying today, that the standard by which you live before God is based on what you think is right. Now by saying that, you're like, whoa, wait a minute, like, that's like, you mean I get to decide? Like if I think it's okay, it's okay. If I think it's wrong, then it's wrong. Like, where's the black and white there? It, it, it seems so permissible. Like, aren't you setting somebody up for compromise? And in a sense, I think it could. And that's why I, I do want to be careful. But I, I can't forsake this principle in teaching in the Bible just because I, I want to be so careful and then avoid it. Because there is the need to share this. And for, in a sense, what Paul was talking about to certain communities, by this time, you should become teachers of the law. And yet, you still need to be fed baby's milk. And there were certain aspects of maturity that people needed to move up in, and yet they were so accustomed to just being fed. And, and so today, I hope to give you one step up. I hope that this message, Principles of Conscience, will allow your spiritual maturity, your own walk with God, to be that much stronger. And then you take that much more ownership over the choices that you make. Can you flip to another passage, Romans chapter 14? This passage that I want to read powerfully frames this narrative in Acts. I want to read the first eight verses of Romans 14. It says this, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Okay? Paul's writing to the Christians at Rome. Okay, guys, there are strong believers and mature believers, and I, I want you to accept the weaker one, 
not just so that you can like judge that person, but I really want you to accept that individual. And this is what he says. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Okay? Now, let me stop there and let me describe what's happening. There was this trend, this thing that was happening in the early church as these people were coming to believe in Jesus, they were not coming from a religious vacuum. Like, it's not like they had no faith. They believed in some sort of deity, right? It wasn't Jesus, but it was some sort of a, a spiritual realm. It was uh, an idol. There was something on the mantle of their home before a cross showed up, so to speak. Okay? And so people came to faith in Jesus from already a religious background. They had certain deities and faith things that they understood and believed. Right? And so there were in these communities, whether it be in Rome or in Ephesus or Corinth or in, in Berea, any of these cities, they had other temples. Right? They had other temples where they worshipped some god. Okay? And in this day, what usually happened was adjacent to some temples were marketplaces. And why the strategic relationship? Now, especially in this time, that when you worshipped a god of any sort, you sacrificed something to that god. Right? There was an offering given, and it was usually, whether it be kind of like, like grains or livestock animals were sacrificed blood was spilt for god and so in these temples when people worshipers were coming they were sacrificing something to their deity and they gave it and as these whether it be cows or chickens or whatever it is they're being offered as an offering and now this meat because that's what it is now it's no longer an animal it's just meat was then taken from the idol temple to the marketplace. And this meat was sold. Rather than allowing this meat to go to waste, they sold it for food, right? And usually, meat that was sold from here, basically slain animal at a, at a temple, was a little bit cheaper. And so now you have people that are accustomed to like, when I shop, we go to Costco. <laughs> Like, we go to Target. <laughs> Wherever you do your shopping, that's what you're accustomed to. And so people in the city, they, like, we went to the idol temple market. That, that's where we bought our meat when we wanted meat. That's just normally how it went, right? And Paul, this guy, comes in, this evangelist, and then he preaches this new God. And actually, and yeah, that's, I, that, I feel like the Spirit is moving. And they believe in Jesus, and they worship Jesus. But dinner time still comes around every night. And when they need to buy meat, guess where they go? They go to Costco again. They go to the place where they've always bought the meat, and so they go back to the marketplace and they buy some meat. And now all of a sudden, as they're eating this meat, some people were saying, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't eat this meat. Wasn't this the flesh of the animal that was sacrificed at that temple? We don't believe in that God anymore. Isn't this dirty meat, basically? Right? 
Shouldn't this be off limits now if we believe in Jesus? This was now a new conversation, a new dilemma in the early church because of the religious foundation that they came from when they started to believe in Jesus. And Paul painstakingly wrote many, many things to clarify this issue for the early Christian community. Romans chapter 14 is one of them. So this is the preface, right, in verse 14. Like, there are some weak individuals, and I want you to accept them. And then he goes on, right, verse 2. Let's start there again. One man has faith that he may eat all things, including meat from idle markets. But he who is weak eats none of that, vegetables only. Let him who eats Regard, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not uh, him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Okay. Sets it real straight. And then he turns to another issue. Verse 5. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. What's this argument? Do you remember when Jesus was healing on the Sabbath and then you had some religious people saying, hey, but you're doing some work on the Sabbath. You shouldn't be doing this, right? And so there was another dilemma now. One was, wait, from the time of Moses, our people have been told one day is holy unto the Lord. That's our Sabbath, the day of our rest. We should not work. We should not do things. We need to devote it to the Lord. It is our Sabbath. And then Jesus comes along and he kind of changes the picture a little bit. He says, wait a minute, I can heal this guy, right? Even David was kind of like threshing grain. And he goes into this entire historical narrative a little bit in his conversation. And he begins to peel back and he says, Wait a minute, I know you've been taught one day is a Sabbath. And yet he, he still held that as holy. But he wanted to expand that more. To say that our entire lives are devoted to God. Our entire week, so to speak. And so now in this conversation, you had a group of people that says, You know what? This one day is holy to the Lord. And you had other people to say, you know what? We don't need to isolate this day because all days are holy to the Lord. I need to worship God on Monday just as I did on the Sabbath. Right? And that was another issue. And Paul is talking about that. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord does not eat. And gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. What I understand is that this passage and this message has the possibility to make you confused. Like, is this okay to do? Because <laughs> aren't there a lot of those moments in our lives where we're kind of wondering, like, is it okay for me to be doing this or thinking this type thing? All right? And I realize the potential of this. 
but yet I still feel the need to share. From our narrative in Acts and what I just read to you in Romans, I want to share two things, and I'll end off with kind of like one summary thing. The first thing that I'll say is this. Just be fully convinced. Don't straddle the fence. Just be confident in what you are doing. That's the first thing that I'll say. Now, I'm not trying to say that if you're confident that it doesn't matter what you're doing, that it's the right thing. That's not what I'm trying to say. All right? But what I will say is this, that when you choose to make a stand on whatever side of the fence you stand on, be confident in that. Allow an assurance, hopefully born from the Spirit of God, to dwell in your heart. It is those moments where we're kind of like second-guessing ourselves and we're doubtful, and yet we still do it. That's when our conscience is ripped apart. Because we're torn. We, we feel we're judging ourselves like, oh man, what did I do? And we're constantly having this inner fight inside. And what I'm saying is, if that fight is there, you know what? You need to refrain from that. Like, if you feel like it's that much of a dilemma for you and you're doubting whether this is good or bad, God is happy or displeased, just stop it right there because there is no conviction in that stance. And so there needs to be conviction first and foremost. And that's what Paul was saying, wasn't he? Like, one person eats meat, one person doesn't eat it, because actually one person thinks it's okay, and the other person thinks, man, this is horrible, right? As long as you are absolutely convinced of that, if you eat, you eat for God. If you don't eat, you do that for God. As long as you are fully convinced of your choice, Paul's saying God accepts both. I don't mean to give that to you as a license for any activity that you are just confident in. Because <laughs> it has that potential, doesn't it? Like, oh yeah, I'll just live a life of frivolous fornication and I'm just confidently fornicating and uh, that's all good with God, right? Like, that's not it. That's not it, right? I'll confidently rob a bank and, you know, I was doing it for the poor, right? And I was going to be robbing it. I mean, it's not that type of a justification. It shouldn't be. And if I do use it for that, I'll get to it in the second point of this message. I've already condemned myself. Because when we're true to the voice inside, conscience, if the Spirit of God dwells within and we allow that voice to speak to us, to intermingle with our own self, our inner being, our person inside, and we allow there to be an interaction between God's Spirit and ours, we will know. That conviction cannot be fabricated. And God is involved in our lives. And when He gives us a confidence to eat for Him or to abstain for Him, there is a conviction that is born that I cannot make up on my own. But I need to be convinced. Just be convinced of it. Don't we normally do this? I mean, this is, we normally say, like, we got good actions and bad actions. And we got a line in the middle. Let's make sure we're good Christians and we always, like, kind of fall on the good action. Right? And that's our dichotomy. Good action, bad action. But I have a little parenthesis there, right? Perceived. I perceive something to be good or I perceive it to be bad. Because God doesn't see the split like this. He doesn't see it as good action and bad action. God sees it like this. Perceived good or bad actions for him or for self. 
right? And so there is the possibility to do something that is perceived to be good and for God to be completely despised by it. Like for him to hate that action. But like the entire world is looking at that like that's good. That's, that's good Christian behavior there, right? Like he loves Jesus. It has the veneer of good, but God is like, wait a minute, I detest that. And there's also, to be able to do a perceived bad action, he had God to be so honored by that. When Jesus was healing the lame man on the Sabbath, that in the day was a perceived bad action. And there are things that we can do that have like this, like, uh, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, not holding the Sabbath as holy. Uh, didn't look good. And yet God received it fully. Right? And so the issue is not the perception of good or bad. The issue is the inner being. The issue is, am I doing this for God or am I doing it for myself? That's the fundamental issue. And I need to get my eyes off of what I think is good or bad and get it on to, am I doing this thing? Thing for God? Like, am I in my inner being being convicted, convinced, and fully assured that this action I want for His glory? And then if that is present, God's like, thank you, my child. I receive that offering. That's a fragrant aroma to me. <sighs> Let me give you some scriptural examples. Going to Jesus' first major teaching recorded in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He starts off this teaching by talking about his definition of being blessed in the kingdom of God. It was so different from what the world considered to be the picture of what is blessed. And in the course of this message, he comes to the aspect of giving and prayer. And he says, I want you to be careful when you give. I don't want you to give like hypocrites and have a trumpet in hand and announce to everybody, look, this is what I'm giving. <laughs> Here it is, how good I am, I've sacrificed. Because actually God is detested by this, like he doesn't like this. Rather, when you give, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Give in secret. <laughs> Because those people who announced their giving to others, they got their reward in full. Recognition by people. But when you give in secret, I want you to know that God sees you and that He repays you. And when you pray, don't pray like those who just go on the street corners or in the prominent places and just kind of like wave their hands in the air and pray these eloquent prayers. Rather, I want you to go into that prayer closet of yours. Pray in secret, because your Father hears you. You don't need meaningless repetitions. You don't need to just exert yourself to get God's attention, because He's hearing you. Just pray, our Father who is in heaven. You see these actions that are perceived to be good. Giving, praying. And yet the issue is not giving or praying. The issue is, why am I doing it? Who am I doing it for? Am I doing it so people think I'm spiritual and good and mature and all that? 
Am I doing it because I, 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 I feel like, you know what, someone's twisting my arm to give? Am I doing it because everyone else is giving? Or am I doing it because God gave me all of these things in my life? And I believe He set a principle of giving back the first of all that I have. And I'm doing this because I want to honor Him. Like he, he, he looks at that motivation on the inside. And to kind of expound on that a little bit. I mean, there's a passage in, in Mark, right? Where Jesus, he brought his disciples into the temple. And it says that he sat opposite of the treasury. That's kind of like an offering box, right? And it says he sat opposite of it. Like other people were looking at the treasury box, kind of like single file in a sense, putting their offering in. And he was like on the other side of the room. Just, just looking, just looking, right? It was just like a, a spy cam, so to speak, you know. And then as people were just coming and offering, he was seeing all of these people like dressed nicely and just like giving these exorbitant amounts of money to the temple. He didn't chastise that. He didn't say that that was wrong behavior at all. So, I mean, some people might look at that and say, oh, you know, we don't need to give or all that because Jesus was doing that. He wasn't saying that that was bad behavior, but he was just pointing to something key. Because unnoticed by probably everybody else in that temple court that day was a poorly dressed woman. I don't think she had the confidence to come straight back, walk to that treasury box. I think there were too many well-to-dos in her way. I think she kind of snaked her way through. I think she ducked, had her head down. She didn't have much, because she didn't own much. And I think, with a slight sense of cowardice, she took all that she had in comparison to all of these well-dressed folks. And she just believed that God saw her. And she did the most unlikely thing. Of the little to nothing that she had, she brought all of it. In our estimation, it was a couple of cents. And somehow she got there finally. She dropped it in, and I can see her scurrying away. Jesus freezes the moment right there. He says, stop! And in a sense, it's like, what? Everything stopped in that moment, and he took the moment to teach his disciples something. Did you see that? That woman right there that you didn't even think about, that nobody noticed, that nobody even elevated. She's probably on the outskirts of the temple. No one wanted her here in the first place. Stop for a second. And I want you to know that heaven saw that gift and considered that more valuable than the sum total of every other gift that day. <laughs> like, if that doesn't tell you God looks at the heart, I don't know what will. I don't know what will in Scripture. That's this message, though. That God has equipped you and I with a conscience. That He has given to us the ability to make choices to honor Him. 
and he wants that choice to come up. Isn't that what free will is? When God created Adam and Eve, isn't that what he wanted? Not blind followership, but voluntary love. And he's given that ability to you and to I, right? To make a choice to honor God. And when we make choices and when we do stuff in our day-to-day lives, we know whether I'm doing this for me or whether I'm doing it in a way that I believe honors God. But too often we do things because we feel pressured by our peers or our community or by our age bracket. And we get our arm twisted into certain situations and we just kind of follow through. We're like cattle herded to, to this little fenced area whether I wanted to be there or not, whether I knew God would be pleased or not, and somehow I find myself in a space like, how did I get here? I compromised myself to get here. Because conscience, conviction, was torn. And if I want to be an individual that pleases God, I need to get my conscience right. It's not about, yes, I come to church, and yes, I pray, and yes, I give, and yes, I do all of the things that a Christian is expected to do. That is not how I please God. How I please God is by doing maybe some of those things that I just mentioned, but understanding that I do it for the Lord. Not for recognition, not for plaques on the wall, not for somebody to pat me on the back, but because I know God has asked it and is pleased through it. And I do it for Him. So, for self or for Lord, and that's what brings me to the second aspect of this message. Not only do I need to be fully convinced, I just need to do it for the Lord. Like, just do it for the Lord. Like, sometimes you're going to burn yourself, right? Like, and we'll get it wrong sometimes. I mean, we're fully convinced that this was for God, and sometimes it just doesn't pan out the way that we wanted. But don't stop there. Just continue down that pattern of life, of doing things for God. Like, just rummaging through, not like what society or all of that is expecting of me, but as God sees me now, how would He be pleased with me? Like, if I made this decision, like, is He for it? (laughs) Like, is it something that God would just like, yeah, I'm right there, son, I'm right behind you. Doing it for the Lord. And all along, people might be pointing fingers, just like they did in that early community. Ah, that guy, he eats dirty meat. Ah, that guy, he's not holy because he doesn't honor the Sabbath. Ah, that girl, ah, him. And just like all of these fingers were flying in accusations, Paul stood up for them. Wait a minute. Actually, God accepts that, and he accepts that. And he wasn't trying to license frivolous behavior. What he was saying was it turns out to be a matter of the heart. And so I love how Paul ended things in that Romans passage, you know. Like, if one person lives, he lives for God. If one person dies, he dies for God. So whether I live or whether I die, I'm the Lord's. If you live by that mantra, you're going to find yourself at life's end at a good place. Like, whether I live or die, I'm the Lord's. That takes fear. Like, man, that like quells fear a lot. Like, but take that mantra. 
and allow that to be a guiding light in the day-to-day decisions that we make. I'll finish with one exit principle born from a passage. You can find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This will be the last thing that I read. First Corinthians chapter 8. Praise him, you can make your way back. From verse 4. This is going to rehash some of the themes that we were talking about through this message. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. I love this because Paul's saying, you know what? Like those idols, they don't even exist. Like it's like nothing. And so like if you eat that meat, it doesn't mean anything because that idol is nothing. That's what Paul's saying. That idol, that God doesn't even exist. There's only one God, right? And so they might have thought it was sacrificed for that idol, but in essence, it was really sacrificed for nothing. Right? That's what he's saying here. There's no idol, but there's no God but one. Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom are all things. And we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, basically the one that kind of thinks that idol that doesn't even exist in the first place, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. This frames it, I think, in the right way for us to end this message. Because the issue for us, again, going back to like perceived good action, perceived bad action. Okay, I won't do it, I will do it. And then we, we, we kind of like graduate from that. And we say, okay, it's not about perceived good or bad, but is it for God or for self? And when that becomes our primary playground of how we make some choices, we're at a better place. 
But then Paul even takes you to the graduate level, okay? And so if the first one was like elementary and then you got like middle school and high school, and this is taking you to like your undergrad and graduate, right? This passage right here. So if you fully understand 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 13 that we read, in my estimation, you've just passed a graduate level course in faith. Because Paul takes it now to a completely different echelon. Right? He's saying, okay, like some people have knowledge that these idols are nothing. Just eat it. It doesn't really matter. And other people are weak. They don't have that same knowledge. They actually think the idol made a difference. And so if the meat was sacrificed to the idol, then that is tainted meat, so I shouldn't do it. And so they're weaker in that way. And so to them, don't eat. And so Paul already laid clear whether you eat or don't eat, that doesn't matter. God can accept both as long as you do it, fully convinced, for Him. But now He takes it to the different level and He says this. You don't live in a vacuum. Your faith community is not just you. There's other people. And everybody has a varying level of faith knowledge. Some are mature, some are not. And I know you're mature and you can eat that full well, unconvicted, and really like you have zero guilt. That's great. You're mature. But if you live in community and there's a person who does not have the same knowledge as you, sees you in that temple restaurant, aren't they going to struggle with that? Because to them, that temple meant something. To them, that meat is dirty. And if they believe in the same Jesus that they think you believe in, aren't they going to stumble by seeing you in that restaurant? So now, though you have the liberty to eat it, graduate level, I want you to know that there is a way to sin against Christ by causing a brother to stumble. And here you need to see the difference. The action is not sin. The action of eating the defiled meat in the temple market restaurant was not sin. The sin was in making the brother stumble. That was the issue. And by virtue of taking my liberty in plain eyesight of the person that had not knowledge, by doing that and making him stumble knowingly, that then became sin. Not the action of eating it, but by doing it in this circumstance. And if you sin against the brother, Paul said, you've sinned against Jesus. And so then he takes it the final step. If by the eating of meat I cause a brother to stumble, I'm of the perspective I'll never eat meat again. Man, I mean, you can take this conversation to drinking, to smoking, to anything, I think. Right? Like, uh, some people, like, I, I, I can drink. I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, I, 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 I got no issues with that. I understand all of that. But if we understand this passage, we look at those things differently. And we're conscious of what's happening around us. How we're living our faith in context to community. And this takes a very big person to take this stance. And so to end this message, Principles of Conscience, let me say this. Error on the side of compassion and sacrifice. Error on that side. Like if you're going to make a mistake, 
Like, if you really don't know, like, that's ah, okay to do, or I shouldn't do it. Like, if you're going to make a mistake, error on the side of showing compassion and personally sacrificing your rights. What you feel is, I, I can do this, I have a right to this. Like, sacrifice that. If you're gonna, if you're gonna make a choice that you really don't know, just default to erroring on that side. That's just what I wanna say. I think that's a great way to sum up what Paul is saying here. Like, you know what? If someone's going to stumble by it, I'm not going to eat it. If, if like, I, I'm okay with all eat it, but it's like, I don't know who's watching. Like in the day and age where everybody's watching, you know what? I'm okay. I, I just, I, I won't. It's not that big of a deal because whether I ate or didn't eat didn't matter to God anyway. I was just fully convinced that of doing this for the Lord anyway. So might as well not make anybody stumble by it. That's the mark of maturity for me, I think. And I, I want to leave that with you today. I hope that through the passages that we read, that somehow, like, you grew a little bit. I hope you don't take from this license to live however you want, because that's never intended to be its application. But I hope you take from this a stronger conviction, a life more fully devoted, and a life that knows how to honor people and fall on the side of compassion and sacrificing personal rights. Amen.